Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Kanye West. And the award goes to Kanye West. And Kanye would like to thank Kanye West. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Mike Zoss Pharmacy. Pick up your pills and a little something extra at incredibly low prices. Only at Mike Zoss Pharmacy. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And I thought you were going to say this This comes to you from Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> this episode sponsored by Kanye West. Fair you enough. want some Kanye West? Go to Kanye West. <laughs> sponsored by. <laughs> <laughs> sponsored by. Con- oh, my God. That's an inception rabbit hole. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. Um, we are. Did we already do our names? I'm all off now. I'm yeah, we West. did. Okay. We did, uh, yeah, I'm Todd. Still. Still Todd. Oh, this is okay. a great start. <laughs> we're, we're on it. Uh, we're filmmakers. We make uh, films behind in front of the camera, acting, writing, full-time writer-director, voiceover work. We, we do a little bit of it all. Uh, we use all of that in order to discuss films, pick it apart, um, see what it's made of, how it works, how it ticks. That's why we're called The Pestle. We're like a pestle and mortar. Uh, we put a movie on the on the mortar and we pestle it into the fine bits and pieces that makes it and we take all of that little movie flour and we bake it into a movie cake <laughs> with movie us cake. inside and then we that's our side that's our side podcast <laughs> movie cake <laughs> <laughs> and today we have a, a really fun episode cooking um what are we covering today man today we are covering no country for old men the coen brothers film so if you haven't seen this film Please pause this episode and go watch it. We're going to spoil a, a bunch of stuff. You bet your sweet bippy. Uh, we're going to look at some things like uh, cinematography and the editing, touch on some of the story and writing, luck, fate, and evil. Um, and of course, we're also going to have on, I think we're going to see if we can get my acting coach, Trent Moore, uh, on to discuss his role in No Country for Old Men. And hear him talk about working with the Coen brothers, his philosophy on acting. Um, yeah. And all of that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film, violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near the Rio Grande. It's directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. screenplay by Joel and Ethan Cohen. adapted from the novel by Cormac McCarthy cinematography by the great Roger Deakins featuring Josh Brolin as Llewellyn Moss, Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh, Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Ed, Woody Harrelson as Carson Wells, Garrett Dillahunt as Wendell, Kelly McDonald as Carla Jean, and Trent Moore as the accountant. I was sheriff of this county when I was 25 years old. Hard to believe. Grandfather was a lawman. Father, too. Me and him were sheriffs at the same time, him up in Plano and me out here. I think he's pretty proud of that. I know I was. Some of the old-time sheriffs never even wore a gun. A lot of folks find that hard to believe. Jim Scarborough never carried one. That's the younger Jim. Gaston Borkins wouldn't wear one up in Comanche County. I always like to hear about the old-timers. Never missed a chance to do so. You can't help but compare yourself against the old-timers. Can't help but wonder how they'd have operated these times. 
There's this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. Papers said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. You'd have to say, okay. I'll be part of this world. That's an incredible monologue. <laughs> the writing and performance, of course. The writing, though. My God. I don't want to put my chips forward and come up against something I don't understand. Man would have to put his soul at hazard for that. You have to be willing to say, okay, be part of this world. What the hell? What the... And it's painting this picture, right? Um, along the way, he's telling these little stories. Um, it's painting this picture of uh, this bygone era when sheriffs didn't even have to wear guns. The world was so much easier and simpler, you know? And, and now he's encountering guys that kill little girls and don't feel no remorse, describing a psychopath, right? A guy who's like, I, yeah, I did it. And if you put me out, I'm going to do it again. It's weirdly honest about what he is and who he is. Um, and he's like, I don't, I don't know what to make of this new world. Right, man. It's, this is a, and that's a really good way to establish everything you're going to experience from here on. Because especially when he says, uh, I don't want to get out there and encounter something I don't understand. And while he's saying that we're watching this air tank get situated in the front seat of a cop car. And you're just like, wait, what's going on here? And of course there's a whole little rollout of that whole thing uh, that kind of takes place throughout most of the movie. Yeah, dude, this is a, I mean, Cormac McCarthy is a bleak human being for everything I can tell. Um, how do you feel watching this movie? What's your experience watching it? Um, and, you know, what do you take away from it? I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm so glad you started with the open of the film because so much happens and so nothing happens. It's crazy. It's, you know, they use, they use, uh, a monologue, an off-screen monologue for exposition that's not really exposition. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you do like that's <laughs> unbelievable writing is what that is. That yeah. you're right. That's you up for the entire experience you're gonna have for the film of of their think things are different now than they used to be. What does that mean? You're about to find out. But and in a way, it kind of sets you up like you're the sheriff, you know, in this, mm -hmm. like, I'm going into this world. I don't know. Like he says in the monologue, he says that he doesn't want to, you know, cash his chips early. He doesn't want to go into something he doesn't understand. We are put in, we're about to be put into a place that we don't understand. 
and go along for this ride with the Coen brothers and their, their absolute brilliance. Like one of the things I love about the Coen brothers is that they are not afraid to kill off people that they shouldn't, that in typically you don't kill off. They'll kill off. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything about their other films, but, but you, nobody's safe in a Coen brothers film. And I think that that is so important to know going into movies like this, that like, or not to know, not to know going in, but just to like, to experience films where Mm. you have giant actors who are giant parts of the movie die early or before the end. Like that's not the end. You know, Josh Brolin dies. That is not the end of the movie, right? That's not even the movie. That is not what the story is Mm. about. The story is about Sheriff Ed and, and his experience in this new world and how he just has to be okay. Now I'm part of this world at the end when he retires, because he can't, he can't handle like Mm. he, he can't handle this. Like this violent world is not for him anymore. It's not for old men. This country is not for old men. Younger men now need to take up the reins, you know, and do what I did. Right. And I mean, to me, that's the story, right? We just have to, we, you know, all of the violence that we see that Javier Bardem's character does and, and everybody that dies and all that stuff, that's to set us up to feel the same as Sheriff Ed at the end of like, what do you do about this? What do you do about a guy who like, you know, is in a car wreck, breaks his arm, his bone is sticking out of his body and he just walks away, you know, like nothing can kill this guy. This guy is untouchable in so many ways. He will find you no matter what. Death will find you no matter what. It's unbelievably layered and beautiful and violent at the same time. Like I've seen more violent films that have not stuck with me like this film sticks with you. I think it's this, it's this idea of this thing that is just ever present and ever coming towards you or you're going towards it. It's this feeling that you get throughout the film that's manifested in, in Bardem's character, but you know, we all know time is coming for us. Death is coming for us, like, or just our time will end at some point. What if that, that could mean death or it could mean just, you know, us being a part of what we love doing, what we feel like we were put on this earth to do, right? Like, like Sheriff Ed, he's put on this earth to be a sheriff, to a lawman. That's, he's proud of it. He even says it in the monologue. He was proud that he and his dad were both sheriffs at the same time. And now it's a different world. You know, it's just unbelievable. And the, the, the acting is fantastic. When you told me that Trent was the accountant, I was like blown away because another thing that, that the Coen brothers do so unbelievably well is they have these tiny roles that are, that they are not tiny. They're gigantic and super important and pivotal and a stat and, like for the accountant, right? We have Ant who has just killed his boss or whatever. And we need to, they use it as an opportunity to establish Anton's dominance once again. He's just killed the, the boss and he looks at this guy and you can, you know that he's got this guy's life in his hands again. And, you know, he make, he does this over and over again where he gives the person a chance right? A chance, whatever that chance might be, whether it's the guy behind the counter at the beginning um, where he flips the coin or it's uh, the wife where he, he's like, call it, 
or it's the accountant. It depends. Do you see me? Answer correctly. And you it like gives him a choice, <laughs> but it establishes his dominance once again. And man, your acting coach just killed that. It's so easy to overdo intense fear. I think, you know, like in your mm. face or in in even in your body, but mostly in your face, especially in a in a shot like that. He had some close ups in that scene. It's so easy to overdo that. I can't wait to talk to him and ask him about that, about, you know, how do you how do you work opposite Javier Bardem? in that role like that's unbelievable anyway the film is absolutely timeless it's amazing i love how desaturated it all is it all is it feels hot it feels dusty it feels arid Mm -hmm. it's just rough very rough there's uh, barely any color but i do notice like when 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 llewellyn shoots the the buck and then goes out or the antelope and goes after it we're we're walking with him and he's looking at the ground and we see we we see pops of blood right it's if you actually desaturate that shot the blood looks black cuz blood is very dark right so that's really good color grading there to to pull out the blood so that you notice that it's blood and it's not just like a black splotch of something or whatever because it's, everything is so you know yellow and and gray that it's hard for that to pop so yeah i i noticed a lot of that stuff it's just um unbelievable in all the ways perfect yeah it's i love what you're saying about the coen brothers you know especially because they they do bring in these smaller roles you know we we always say there's no small roles in film and that's true of course it's actually true uh but often what a lot of directors might do or writers might do is try to minimize those roles in a way that there's not a lot to do as an actor, right? You come up, you take someone's order and then you walk away and they're just creating space for your main characters, your, your big names to, to carry the entire film, but having rich, interesting characters played by really talented actors really breathes so much more life into, you know, into a story and Coen brothers are excellent at finding great actors, but also making sure they're carving out something for those actors to do. They're not just, you know, props, you know, set decoration. They're actually there uh, with some stakes in the scene, right? Every time we encounter these side characters, they there's real stakes in play, um, whether it's, you know, the coin toss at the gas station clerk, um, of course, you know, the accountant, um, but also even the 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 woman in the in the trailer, right? You know, can't give you no information (laughs) and and you feel it there's stakes there there's you know life and death is hanging in the air which is you know fundamental to this entire story of a psychopath on the on the hunt that that's one side of it but like there's so every scene he encounters someone there's always going to be stakes and it's just so well done um every single character feels alive and breathed in um and that certainly comes down to great casting but also just really good directing to be able to know what you want to pull out of these actors in the first place. And because of their tone, I can imagine sometimes it's tricky to get people on your page. This isn't a, they don't make normal movies um, where people show up and they do the obvious thing. Oh, what's written on the script is all you got to do. Like uh, Mamet or Mame or however you pronounce it, uh, his name. He's really big on you just write the words and actors just say the words. Like if it's a well-written script, a well-written play, 
the actor doesn't need to do anything. They just need to show up and say the words and the context delivers all the emotion. And to some degree, I, I agree with that, but not a hundred percent. That's like half the work. You really do need an actor that shows up and breathes uh, the, the world. And I can't read so- that monologue that Tommy Lee Jones does. <laughs> no, I can't do that. No. I can say the words the best I can, but it won't be a quarter of what he does. <sighs> So, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of life in there, you know? Yeah. And the Coen brothers just do such a great job of making sure people understand their tone. If you walk onto their set, not fully getting it, but they see something in you, I guarantee you're going to deliver exactly what they want you to deliver, even if you don't fully get this kind of awkward thing that's happening. I mean, take Garrett Dillahunt. He's an incredible actor. He's one of my favorite unsung actors out there. And he's playing this kind of goober of a sheriff. And I could see him wanting to play it a little more straight. This is a drama. People are getting crushed in this movie left and right. And you have this kind of weird comedy coming from the the sidekick deputy. Like, what is this guy doing? Um, and, and the Coen brothers just really love all these little idiosyncrasies, right? The accents can't give you no information. Um, the befuddled, you know, Wendell deputy, right? Oh, sheriff. He was just here. Like he's just catching on to this thing. It's almost like you're from Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Almost right. Almost. You have the, uh, the little old cantankerous mother, right? Mama. I got the cancer. I got Uh, I love it. I freaking love that. That was so good. I forgot about so it until it happened. And her, her styling itself, right? She's like just fresh out of these hair curlers kind of look and bathrobe all cooped up. Oh. You have the, even the little kids right at the end. Uh, that one kid can't stop staring at the bone. Look at that effing bone. <laughs> And it's just all this weird humor in the middle of this crazy drama. Yeah. Like, oh my God. That's beautiful. And it's so specific to them. Yeah. Um, there's only a handful of other directors you'd put in their kind of neighborhood. Paul Thomas Anderson is a big one, right? He, he plays in that same sandbox for sure. And, and I love, you know, contrasting all their kind of work, but yeah, I, I have a great deal of respect for the Coen brothers, not just because they picked, they always pick really good material um, or come up with it from scratch, but they also, you know, just do a great job of creating their own sense of tone and bringing everyone through it the entire way through. Uh, that's, that's great directing, you know, yeah. that's not just guys at the helm, you know, those are guys carving out their own little path. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. The, this for me, man, watching this movie, I, I'm always surprised how much, I can actually sit through and engage with it without becoming just a wreck of a human. Like it's a pretty dour film. It's not, you know, here to make your day better. Um, uh, and yet I, I have no problem watching this. I've, you know, watched it last night. I watched it again this morning and it's like, I, you know, I forget to even think about what I'm watching. I'm so engaged. It's so gripping. Um, everything, obviously the, the performances, the writing, the cinematography Deacons, um, just, beautiful the the stuff that he does man is really impressive because it looks really unique it looks like its own thing um it doesn't look like a copycat of anything but it all feels endemic to the story that's being told uh so that you don't really think about it until you're done with it and you're like man that was kind of a beautiful movie wasn't it um 
but and while you're watching it, he's doing his job by being invisible. Uh, and, and you never get a strong feel for the light. Where's the light coming from? It's just there. And it always feels in, embedded into the scene in a, the most natural way. Uh, and yet some of the things that he does is really not natural. So throughout the, I've heard him say he's, uh, sometimes gets accused of just being too minimalistic. Like he's not the kind of, you know, cinematographer where he's like, if I only need one light, why am I breaking out 10? Like, let's just use the one light. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if I don't need to see the details in the blacks, then what do I need ambience for? Like, there's no point to it. Uh, and so he's really good just about, he knows what he wants and he just gets that. Yeah. He's not thinking about all these other things. And so sometimes he's accused, he says, I, I, I think I've heard him say anyway, that he gets accused of being too minimalistic, but then other times. And so you, you, you could start to say, oh, you're just being lazy, which obviously he's not. Um, but then you contrast that with some of those scenes at night in the middle of the desert. And I've heard him talk about this. Uh, and I don't remember exactly how he did it, but that hillside in the background is lit. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of lights going that on back, back there that back lights the cars the yeah, trucks but, yeah that that's in the background no 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 that's backlighting no, yeah. the mountain yeah you're right <laughs> the cars just happen to be there but the entire right. mountain is back there. you're right. right yeah i'm sure you had extra lights for you know for the for the cars in the media setting but just so that you can see the outline the silhouette of the the hills yeah. in the back like i forget how many if it was like 5 10 20 whatever he had you know probably some kind of arc lights or, or brutes or something but just madness uh and it had to of, be really soft because it was supposed to look like it was coming from like a city or uh, i guess some lights at a gate so it's not like beams of light like they, they had to like you know like diffuse it a lot you know it's impressive like just i th that one you know just kind of boggles my mind because it's the kind of thing you see it you don't think much about it. It just feels like moonlight or city light coming from the back. Uh, but then once you actually start thinking about, wait, where is that light coming from? They're in the middle of Big Bend, like, or Marfa, like they're, where did he get that light? And so, uh, bonkers. The other, as far as cinematography and editing goes, the other stuff that I love, and it's all simple stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love the little slow push-ins that, you know, happens throughout the film they pick them perfectly. It's not just doing it to do it because it looks cool, but it's there to heighten tension, right? And it's usually when we're waiting to hear or see Shigur show up, we just suddenly like we're waiting behind the car um, after the wreck and he's got a shotgun and he's waiting for Shigur and we're waiting, we're waiting and then slowly we push in. And that's such a, an important before and after to hold before the push in. Now we're just waiting. But when you start to push in, now we're anticipating it's happening. Here we are. Here we go. And your breath starts to quicken, right? The pacing of a shot like that in and of itself is great directing and cinematography. Similar after uh, later in the film, um, whenever Shigur shows up and kills the uh, Mexican drug dealers in the motel room. And then afterwards, he takes the socks off, those bloody socks. And oh, throws them on the that scene. scene? Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. That whole scene. Yeah. Um, but also just love at the end of that scene, the lamp is knocked down. And it's blasting light right up into his face. That uplighting. It's that monster. I've talked about it a dozen times. I love a judicious use of uplighting to, you know, talk about the kind of character we're looking at right now. Um, it's beautiful. And it's a great use of, 
I'm assuming that was just the bulb. Like uh, it, it didn't look like there was a way to add in any lighting because the the prac is lighting this the shot. This is what it I, is what it looks like to me anyway. Yeah, but throughout the film, they also great use of close ups. They save them for the emotional weight, and so the they they're constantly hanging around these mediums and like these medium wides. And then like in the hospital scene, whenever uh, Llewellyn is there and uh, Carson Wells shows up and we're hanging out in these mediums, Llewellyn is acting cocky, right? Um, He's like, I got this. I'm not worried about you. He's not going to find me. And then Carson asks him, "Uh, no, you don't understand. How do you know he's not on his way to Odessa right now? And then we cut to a close up on Llewellyn. Now we can read his emotion because now he's pausing and now we can register the fear. Um, whereas if the entire time you're hanging out on his close up, it may not register as cleanly, but whenever you're suddenly there after a pointed question, now it doesn't matter if the performance is going to be there or not. You're going to read it anyway. And that's just, you know, then you have Josh Brolin doing his thing. Of course, you everything's firing on all cylinders at that point. The other nice thing is the editing which is funny because in the credits they put it's edited by Roderick Janes. Um, and that's actually the Coen brothers. They did their own editing, <laughs> uh, which is really cool on this level. You don't see a lot of that. Um, directors often let. And so for me, it's comforting because I like to do all my own editing. Um, and for the way they cut, man, I love it. I love the use of hard cuts. They're constantly hard cutting in and out of scenes. And so for instance, Shigur sitting on the side of the road, kind of broke down, right? He's playing up a, a, a thing. Um, and then a, a truck pulls up. We're in a, this medium, right? Uh, the guy rolls down his window. What's the problem here, neighbor? And then we cut to a wide. Immediately, the hoods are popped up. They're facing each other. He's, you know, plugging in the cables. Uh, and, and then a conversation takes place, right? Can you get the chickens out of the truck? And he's like, what do you mean? And cut to feathers being washed out. Those are hard cuts. And that's all I mean by hard cuts is we're not establishing. We don't see him pull the truck around and pop the hood and pull out the cables. We just go from him asking the question straight into this is what's happening. Uh, And what I love about that kind of storytelling is we, the audience, have to fill in the blanks. And it's asking the audience to participate whenever you're doing something like that. You're asking the audience to, to fill in those blanks for you instead of walking them through and showing them everything piece by piece right and the 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 coen brothers are just really great by using those kind of hard cuts uh to to make us do that uh and then lastly same thing with the the flirting at the the motel pool right exact same thing happens they're flirting beer leads to more beer i know what you're up about uh and then suddenly we cut to the sheriff driving up to the motel gunfire truck speeding off in that little stunt with the truck spinning out while the guys are climbing in crazy like that's a beautiful picture of what uh madness is happening right now uh and it just it's a hard cut we go straight into this jump in time um and it's it's so beautiful it's so wonderfully edited uh and of course it coincides directly with the uh, uh the writing and the directing um and with that i want to hear more about some of this directing uh we are going to bring in trent Moore. let's see if we can get trent on the horn Trent, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, you may know Trent Moore. He's uh, from one of his roles as a counselor in Teeth, if you're into uh, vagina dentata stories, of course. Um, And of course, uh, (laughs) as well as uh, his role in No Country for Old Men as the accountant. Um, And thank you so much for joining us, man. I'm really excited. Uh, I know 
Uh, there's a lot to talk about and I'm going to cover a lot of ground, but right off the bat, I, I think Todd is already like gunning up uh, his first question. So far away, buddy. Well, you might have more specific ones, but um, you're, you're standing there in a room with Javier Bardem looking at you. Right. And you know, his, what he's capable of, his character is capable of what I saw when I watched this film was I saw like legitimate fear in your face without you doing much. And I, I'm curious to know how do you, how do you pull something like that off? Because I think that a lot of actors overdo things like that because they think that the camera needs it. But how, what are you thinking about if anything, when you're, when you're standing there looking at Javier Bardem and you're, and you know that this guy has your life in his hands and, and you have to communicate, you know, actual fear without overdoing it. Was, was there a lot of directing or did you just do it? No, I will say there was very little directing. Uh, Coen brothers cast well and get out of your way. Mm. Um, that, and, and I believe that's sort of historic. I mean, that's known just from listening to other actors talk about it. Um, you know, they sort of get the, the person who's doing what they want to do. And then, and then they do it. I, at one point, Ethan gave me some direction. I don't even remember what it was. And we did another take. And then he goes, you know what? Just never mind. Just ignore me. <laughs> and, and Joel said something like, what are you talking about? He goes, I tried to give direction. It was a mistake. <laughs> so they actually, but in terms of, so I'll give you two answers to your question about that. Um, and I probably will talk too much here and I apologize, but no, by all means. not possible. There's one answer that's the the good answer for people who aren't actors, um, because it it sort of says that acting isn't really acting. And then there's another answer that I'll give for actors, because I, I I don't actually believe that's true. But I met so I met Javier Bardem that day, and of course I knew who he was, and I was. It's a funny thing because you're if I were to meet Javier Bardem for dinner, I would be pretty freaked out because he's Javier Bardem and I'm me and, you know, he's a big movie star. And, um, but there was something, you know, knowing that I'm just not just, but I'm going to be acting with him. It's like, I can do that because I can do acting. <laughs> I don't know if I could have a conversation and sound like a normal person, but it, I can do acting. So I wasn't freaked out to meet him, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know him obviously. And he didn't speak a lot of English at that time. This was his first English language movie and he was really learning English. But I remember he kind of he came into the trailer and his hair was all messed up and he was wearing a Misfits T-shirt. And then they start combing out his hair into that iconic haircut, which I, nobody knew was a thing, you know, at that time. And I look over in the chair and I go, oh, that's OK. But he's the loveliest man, just so nice and, you know, very grateful. Oh, so nice to meet you. And, you know, he's very nice. And um, the whole time. So he's very warm and friendly. And we we do. um even the sort of setup shot, the master of him shooting Stephen Root and all that. So we've done all of that. Then we get to that scene and that's all him shooting. And then he turns around and he's looking at the dead body on the ground. So the first time he comes around on me, he turns around because he says, who are you? I say, uh, who, me, nobody counting. I think there's, there's a few lines of dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then he turns around and just kind of looks at me says, oh, that's foolish. Well, the first time he came around to look at me, that's the first time I really saw him as Chigurh. And it was terrifying. <laughs> I thought, who is 
that. Like I had just spent this time with this really lovely man and his eyes were dead and hollow and just all of that feeling that, that you get as an audience when you see him just came over me. I, it really was jarring and terrifying, and like you say. So, the, I mean, that's the non-actor answer is I really didn't have to act. I just suddenly was terrified by this guy who didn't seem all that terrifying just, you know, five minutes ago. The actor answer, though, is when I went in for this audition, when I read this script, the first time I read it was actually I, I my agent said, oh, do you want to audition for this Coen Brothers movie? I said, yes. <laughs> why, why is that even a question? Um, but they sent the script and this was a while ago. So I, I had to print it out. And for whatever reason, I, I, I sort of printed out. I wasn't able to read it. And I was on, I was in my trailer on that movie Teeth that uh, Wes mentioned. And I don't know what you mean by if. I don't know who's not into the John <laughs> Dentata movies. I mean, that's, that's all a I much more watch. niche movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh. pretty. No, but I was I was in the trailer on Teeth, and I remember reading the script and just instantly understanding. And you hope for this as an actor going, "Oh, I know what this scene is like. This makes sense." And it's stillness. And I, my background is in theater, is actually heavily physical theater, but a lot of what I have learned in some of this is, you know, if we pretentiously will call it dynamic immobility, which is being still, but with purpose and meaning. Because in film acting, it usually is about stillness and, and not doing anything, but you actually have to do a lot with that nothing. And that's a tricky thing. But as soon as I read the script, I was like, oh, this is what this is made for. And when we went into the audition, all around the casting agent's office on the, the first read where you don't meet the directors or anything, there were all these signs they had printed out that said, less is more. And that told me that everybody was coming in too hot. I mean, everybody was coming in there because it, I mean, they printed out the signs and taped them <laughs> on the wall. I've never seen that. I thought people aren't understanding the tone of this movie, which happens all the time to me. But in this case, I was like, oh, yeah, don't worry. I've got less for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming in. I've got nothing but less. So there's, But there's a lot of – and there's technique and stuff you do with that where – I mean the, the main deal is is when you practice it, it's not less. I practice being abjectly terrified at home and, and shaking and crying and, and doing all – you know. I did all of that so that when I did hold still and do nothing, that was still sort of present, you know. But then, like I say, it helped to have just a marvelously terrifying person turn and look at me, you know. And then your job as an actor is to just get back to that place at every day because you just try to remember the first time you saw Sugar. So that's a long answer, but that's the answer. No, that's great. What um, I've heard you also say that there was laughter uh, at Video Village from the Coen brothers? That was in the audition. Um, oh, okay. Because I, one of the things I really worked on was, yeah, I, I'm not going to do, and I, I did the script every way I could. I knew how I wanted to do it right away, but then you know, we had a couple of days for the audition, so then what I did is every wrong way I could think of, you know, and tried to do it big and tried to do it small. I did it every way, but I knew I was always coming back to just being as still as possible and not, but I had thought of it, I think from every angle that I could think of it from. And then, um, the first line of the scene is Shigur says, who are you? And then I, then it says pause. And then my character who at that time was called man at chair. <laughs> like everybody in the script that didn't have a name was either man or woman 
and they're located woman at desk, man in truck. And I was man at chair because I was a man at a chair. Um, but so he says, who are you? And then the man at chair says, who, me? Nobody accounting, all that stuff. But it said pause. And so we go into the audition and it's for the second read. I did the first read and then they go, okay, you're going to do a callback and, and the Coen brothers will be there. Okay. That's a little bit of a free, they're going to be there in the thing. So you go in and it's Joel and Ethan Cohen are sitting there. And I'm like most people, just a giant fan. I mean, and that's, but again, I'm like, oh, this is such a relief because I just get to act for you. I don't have to converse with you. I don't have to be a normal person. I can be the actor. That's the one thing I know that I can do well. So hooray. And they say, hi. And Joel had his arm in a cast. I remember everything about it like it was yesterday. But um, then they go, okay, here we go. And, you know, action. And the there's like an assistant at a music stand. And she says, who are you? And then it says pause in the script. So she goes, who are you? And I take a long pause. <laughs> I mean, I look at the body on the ground, which isn't there. I look back at Sugar, who isn't there. You know, it's a long time. And then I go, me and Ethan burst out laughing <laughs> like he that just cra and in all of those different ways that I had done this scene I had never thought it was funny like it never occurred to me that it was funny <laughs> and Ethan falls apart laughing like immediately which is uh, the top three best sounds you can hear you know <laughs> like your your child's laughter Ethan Cohen's laughter <laughs> I don't know what it, it was just like so great. And so then I keep doing the scene and the laughter and everybody's laughing and it not occurred to me. It was a comedy at all up until that point. And I, th it, looking back on it, I think in that moment, I got that part. I mean, we did the rest of the scene, but then we, it ended and everybody goes, yay. And Ethan um, goes, well, that was some good man at chair. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And I, I walked out, but, and, as an actor, you always kind of think I, I th certain type of actor, the type of actor I am and other actors I know, you go out of an audition and pretty quickly you think, oh, my God, I screwed that up. No matter how well it went, there's like I actually had a friend that we used to always have to check in with right after an audition so we could record that first impression because pretty soon you begin thinking about all the ways they hated you. But um I remember in those 10 seconds of bliss just going, I just got that part. I know I just got that part. And then 10 seconds later, I thought, no, I think they hated me. I think they were making fun of me. That's why they were laughing at all that stuff came in. But it was great. Yeah, but they, I had not realized it was a comedy. And, uh, and it was. And it is funny. I mean, it is. He's the only person in the room <laughs> who he could possibly be talking to. He's a who, me? Because he kind of looks, but in the, you know, it's great in the movie. It kind of looks like he's looking at the dead body. But yeah, for young actors advice, I mean, that's what I always say now. If you can find a pause, because if you go into audition for the Coen brothers, there's a good chance you're going to go too fast. I mean, it's just exciting and, and, and you're, you want to get to it, but the scene is never about the lines. And if you can find a good pause in your audition anywhere, make it long, take your time with it, you know? Gives you time to settle in and lets them know that, that you're there to play. And that's um, a great note. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's well, and it's, it's only, you know, in, uh, whenever I teach acting, I say everything that you teach is really just reverse engineering moments that worked accidentally. 
And a lot of those for me are, are from no country. It's just like, it just, when you have good writing that makes sense to you, acting is easy. And if, if every movie were no country for old men, I would have a, a film career, you know, you know who I am and it would be great, but it's not always easy. Sometimes you have bad writing or it just doesn't work. Or you can't click in. So you have to go, well, what, what was it that worked about that? Why did this work so well that now I can, how can I apply this to when it's not the Coen brothers writing the script, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. if you can just get an audition for a Coen brothers movie, just <laughs> you're, you'll probably be okay. I saw a, uh, I saw a, a clip of Josh Brolin talking about when he, uh, they he was talking to um, the bro- the Coen brothers about what he should say when he sees the money, when he opens the mon- the bag of money. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you seen that? And he's because there's no line there or something, or maybe there is a line, but but uh, I, I, one of the brothers went up to him and was like, I don't know, just say something, whatever. And then so he he did the whole yep when he sees it, and he said that when they were watching it in at the premiere. When that line came up, Joel just started, or maybe it was Ethan, they just started laughing, like, out loud. <laughs> and he was like, oh, what? <laughs> so maybe that's, a, it's these little moments, and, we, and Wes brought this up earlier when we were talking, these little moments of, like, in between just sheer terror and, and like, what the heck is going on? This is so violent, uh, of just laughter, where something was hilarious, out of the blue, and that's so them. You know? Yeah, and it, it's he's. I think he says it's you know one of the very few improvised moments in the scene. There's not a line there, and he says "yep" or "huh" or something. Yes, yeah. because it's very tight. I mean, you you know the script is very tight when it comes to you. But um, it's good. I love that line too because just from a in the book when he sees that money, there's a line. I wish I could remember what it was, but he instantly knows he's he's going to die, Moss. Wow. Like there's a line where he says he 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 it's something about how he sees his relatives getting tortured. He says, you know, I know like he knows in his mind that this is not going to end well. And that's what kind in a way it makes the book work. I mean, there's, there's a, a real fatalist view. Like there's never a sense that he's going to get away with this. It's very hard in a movie because we've seen in movies so many times, you know, that it does kind of work out in the end. But it, so I, I, a lot of people see this movie and they feel like it's a bait and switch. When he ends up, we can do spoilers, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, spoiler yeah, allowed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. You know, they feel like it's a bait and switch when he gets killed, but that's always the way it's going to be. It's not a movie about him. It's a movie about Sheriff Bell. Exactly. Um, but so Roland doing that little huh there, to me, it's it's that moment of like, well, I, I just, it, it's not optimistic. It's, a, this just fucks me. This is it. Yeah. This doesn't end well. But you keep trying. Of course, you you think maybe I'll be the one to get away with it. But yeah, I wish I could remember the line. I think he talks about his relatives getting electrocuted or something. I mean, there's really just a moment where he goes, yep, <laughs> I wish I'd never found this much. Like within seconds of finding it, he knows it's over. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most impressive things about this story is how basic it is on, a, on its most fundamental level, right? Uh, it's just about a guy finding a bag of money. Like on its most, as a starting point, that's that's it. Uh, how many movies are about just that f- someone finding money randomly and then go right. And so it's 
to me, this is a really great example about, it's never about the idea or the concept. It's always about the execution because from there you start to build out this world and all these layers of meaning about luck and fate and evil and the nature of evil. Is it new? Are we encountering a new type of evil now? Um, of course not. And of course that's the story that Ellis tells at the end, but I love that all of that can come together on such a very simple, basic idea uh, that's been tried and true a thousand times. And so there's nothing new under the sun, but there's always a, a new way to talk about anything. Um, I am curious, Trent, too, uh, just to hear a little bit more about your background. Um, you've told so many interesting, wild stories about experimental stage uh, craft. And uh, I learned a lot, like just a lot of the things you taught me, I keep as my tools and my tool belt. That's one of the things I really loved about your approach and uh, why you're my favorite acting coach I've ever had is because you, you're not very dogmatic <laughs> about anything. Um, it's just about what works. Every scene, every character might need something different. Um, and as much as I love stuff like method acting and it's useful and I, and I, I can usually use that to a great effect, not always. Sometimes I encounter a random weird character and I need a new way to get into it. Um, and one of the, the the characters that I ran into early on with you was auditioning for Shane Carruth's uh, second film, uh, Upstream Color. And I was struggling and, you know, you worked with me for an evening on it and you did the exact thing you were talking about a minute ago was where you told me, go really big, just really, really big. Now, no, go nothing, just as small as you can. And what are the types of person this character represents? What does he think he is? He thinks he's what, a God. Okay, well, read it like God. You think he's... He kind of sounds like a, a teacher, read it like a professor, you know, um, he, what about a dad? What, how would a dad, you know, sound if you were to do, and you just kept playing around with all these ideas. And then by the end of it, you're like, okay, now throw it all away. And just what makes sense to you? Just go, just go. Don't think about it. Throw it all away. One of those techniques is really fun. And it's like, okay, I can break up the tissue of the scene a little bit so that it's now lived in. And then I love the mental gestures. And so you, I, I'm curious from the beginning, like what drew you into acting? What, when did you fall in love with it? Was there like a film or someone you knew any origin to it at all? Or is it just something that you just kind of played with and you grew to love? Oh, there's, there's an origin. Believe me, like I say, <laughs> what you're going to get is a, a editing challenge when you talk to me, because there's always, <laughs> there's always a story. Um, I mean, I was a creative kid, so I'll tell you the story because it matters. And that's, it's, so nice to hear you say that, and thank you. I mean, I'm I'm glad that it that it it had meaning, and mostly it's. I think it's the greatest thing that we get to do as human beings. If you love it, if you love acting, I just it means so much to me intellectually and spiritually and on every level. So if if, if I've ever helped someone with their path with it, it's it's very meaningful to me. So thank you for saying that. But um, I was a creative kid. You know, I it was clear that I was, or I should say I was a non-sporting kid. It was clear I wasn't going to be an athlete, but, uh, you know, I had creative outlets and I would write poetry or whatever, you know, as a, and in sixth grade, they were doing a, a play at our church. It was a Christmas play and somebody didn't want to do a part. And I did a monologue in it. And the monologue was a kid telling the Christmas story, but forgetting it. And so he starts to, to say the, uh, and there were in some country, but then he forgets what the story is. And he calls for a line, but that's part of the play is that he calls for a line and, you know, somebody off stage has to say the line, but he, so it's a play about him screwing up doing this monologue. So the first monologue I'm doing, I have to look like I'm doing it wrong. And I remember getting up in front of the church, you know, 
50 people or whatever it was, but to me, and there's a spotlight on me and I start doing the monologue and then I call for line and not everybody laughs right away. And I can tell they think I might be screwing it up. Like they don't get that it's part of the play. And what I, again, I don't know that I thought this at the time, but when I look back, I realized that I didn't care. That in fact, I thought that was great, that I was fooling them, that here I was being perceived as screwing something up, but it was more important to me that I was selling the scene and I was doing the right thing. And when I did try to play sports, it wasn't that way, right? If I was in, you know, right field or whatever it was in baseball and you hear the crack of the bat, I didn't go, oh, that's my chance. I went, oh, shit. I hope I don't screw this up. Uh and the opposite thing happened, you know, is that they thought I was screwing up and I didn't care. And that was so exciting. And I thought this is, and this is when you find the thing. It's like, I'm more concerned about getting this right than I am about getting this wrong. And that's everything else. When it's not something you want to do, it's, you're more concerned about getting it wrong. But I remember just, it was a crystalline moment where I found that. I thought this is so exciting to do this, to be on a stage and not the irony of being an actor is that you also are looking for places where you're just not self-conscious in life. Uh, self-consciousness and sort of self-awareness is such a burden all day, every day. And we just have it. It's just part of humanity. But we always find that the most freeing, fun times are when we can sort of let go of that. Some people do it through drinking or, you know, some people find through sports, you know, that ability to sort of focus on something and hmm. And be there. But I think most of the things we're doing to find joy are also things where we're releasing self-awareness. The irony of actors is, I think when you're really good at it, it's it's weirdly the place where you're the least self-aware because you can give yourself over to something bigger than yourself, beyond yourself. And that's that's what became so exciting to me about acting. And the way that I've approached, you know, training a technique, the way Wes talked about, is just wanting to find every corner of of how it can be done, you know, and, uh, even if, even if I know from the beginning that, that this nervous accountant is just going to be still when I'm rehearsing it, I want to play it every possible way just to see what happens because humanity is very complex. So whatever my first decision is, even if it's right, it's not full enough, you know, <laughs> until I've made a bunch of other decisions because everything I've, you know, even now, as I talk, I'm thinking of other stuff or, there's this great Richard Foreman book where he's talking about writing, but he says, you know, when my uh, grandmother died, somebody told me about that. And I was very sad, of course. But I also, for no reason, happened to remember a song from camp. I could just pop into my head. He said, that, that had nothing to do with my grandmother dying, had nothing to do with me being sad. But why is that any less a part of my emotional experience at that point than the sadness? And I think a lot of times as an actor, we, you know, we go, oh, he's sad. But there's all this other stuff going on. So the more you can sort of push stuff in there just to almost get in the way, then it makes whatever your, your front-facing thing is, sadness or fear or you know, anger, whatever, it just makes it more interesting to look at because it's how we really are. But that's a long way. But I mean, from the moment I found that at 12 – I knew that that's what I was supposed to do. And I've just tried to find all kinds of different ways to do it. And I've, I've been lucky enough to work with people like the Coen brothers and work with a bunch of different great artists, but it was a real like, yep, this is what I do. This is who I, am. it's nice Man, to know at 12. Your, your statement that even if you get it right the first time, it's not full enough is like 
unbelievably simple and yet so clear. You know, yeah, maybe the first time you did that line when you were practicing, it, you were very still and everything. But the stillness didn't have the weight of all the other ways that you did it until you did it the hundredth time. You came circled back through it. Man, I beat myself up all the time for being slow at things. Like it takes me forever to learn how to do something new or to catch up with so-and-so at this or whatever. And I, I think, man, if I was just better at this and, you know, but I'm just not there yet. I'm just not ready because I'm not full enough at the experience of trying it. And I think that we all do that, not just me, but I think that we all do that so much. And I, it's such a beautiful statement that you made of like, we just need to be full of experience in order to do this thing that might be so simple as, as staying still. Right. It's just, yeah, lovely, lovely. Well, that's Thank you. I, I'm often better at saying things than I am at practicing them. That's the fun part of teaching. <laughs> so I'll have to remember <laughs> that myself. Um, and when an opportunity comes along, like the Coen brothers, I do end up practicing it. You know, I mean, it's harder to do that when it's not, um, a script, but yeah, but that's, that's the sort of fun of, of putting yourself in it. When I do get to teach acting is I get to think about it from, from that outside perspective and, uh, and stumble across little bits of wisdom that I didn't even know I had. Man, I'd like to ask you a little bit about Alexander technique. So I'm taking this class right now on Alexander technique and it's not clicking at all. Um, it, it feels, and I don't know if it's just, you know, the, the teacher and I just aren't quite gelling um, or, and I'm just not understanding, which happens. However slow Todd is, I'm twice as slow. And I I don't know, like a lot of the stuff that's happening is very physical, of course. It's all rooted in, you know, a, a physical aspect. Um, but it just feels so micro. Like it's kind of tilt your head down one degree. Ah, yes, that's it. That There it is. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel any difference. <laughs> like, I don't know. What is what it? Just what happened. is the Alexander technique? Exactly. So oh. I would love to hear you, what you think of it as. Um, oh. And um, if you have a strong opinion one way or the other, like it's fine if you hate it or if you think it's the best thing since Shakespeare himself. Uh, <laughs> I I have a, I don't have a super strong. I mean, I have a, I have a positive opinion. It's mm. narrow, I should say, because I, I haven't really studied it in depth. I had, it was taught to me in college not well. I had a bad teacher for it. So that's, I mean, part of it is, yeah, it's, it's a matter of the teacher. And cause we would do, it was a lot of it was establishing relaxation from the beginning. And there was this long process and it was very physical. And I remember he would uh, cradle, we would lie on the floor and then he'd cradle my head in his hands and he would go relax. And I'm you know, 20 years old, total ball of anxiety all the time. And I go, okay, I'm going to relax. And I would try to relax. And he would go, relax. And I, re I remember him shouting at me, relax, which I thought at the time, like, I don't think that ever worked in the history of, of saying that uh, but, word. So it didn't go well, but there when you could get into it, there was this, what I remember from that class was you, if you would go through that whole release and everything, when you sort of stood up, you felt like an inch taller or two inches taller hmm. is that true relaxation. Um, you know, we tend to sort of think of it as like a down thing, but it actually would release those tensions in you and would sort of just open you up to the world. And I think a lot of movement technique is that idea of, of just opening your physical space to just be a little more receptive to what's around it. I mean, that can get very pretentious, but I then had a later class later, we had somebody come teach us, um, Alexander technique that I, we just did a couple of sessions with her, but the amazing thing she did that I don't think is really related to Alexander technique 
but as we were all sitting in a circle and she said, I'm going to tell you to relax in a minute, but I need you to know something. Relaxing is not doing something. Relaxing is not doing something. So you have to say it's not an, it, it's a verb uh, grammatically, but it's a non-action relaxing. So before we did any sort of muscular or physical work, she said, I'm just going to tell you to do some things. And I want you to think to yourself, I could do these things or I could not do these things and then say no. So she would just say, tell me your middle name. We would all sit there and not tell her our middle name. <laughs> not that it was bad to tell her a middle name or not tell her, but we would just make this choice to say no. And then we would say, you know, she'd say, whatever, um, stand, stand up and turn in a circle. And we would all sit there and not stand up. And all we did was sit in a circle and do nothing for a little bit. So then when we started doing the, the physical work, and she would say, you know, we would be working on relaxing our shoulders. It's not a matter of doing something with your shoulders. It's a matter of not holding tension in your shoulders, of saying, okay, I could have tension there. Mm -hmm. I don't need it right now. So I'm just going to say no. And that to me has been a life skill. I mean, on the chiropractor's table, when the chiropractor's saying, hey, can you relax? I, I, I know how to, and I've had chiropractor go, oh, you're really good at relax. It's the opposite thing of what that professor said. Oh, you're really good at relaxing. Thank you very much. I'm so flattered because because I, it's that matter of saying no to things. And if you can sort of go through all of that again and, and do it through your whole body, it does release so much that then it, it from and then there's there's that's why I say it's narrow. Then there's more to Alexander once you move on from that of how you use your body. But it's mostly you've sort of awoken the parts of you have only the parts of you intention that need to be intention to to get you through the world. I mean, you can't be totally relaxed, or uh, I mean, you wouldn't be able to stand up certainly. But even in a seated position, you can't be totally relaxed. You need, but if you if you're conscious of it and know what it is, then you're a little more prepared to um, to use that in space. Well, I mean, if you look at at no country, it's a matter of just the little things of there's a little shift I do when he turns around. I've watched it. I mean, I'm, I'm an actor who can watch myself on screen. I'm also a unicorn in that way because I'm interested to see how it looks. Mm -hmm. But there's just a little shift back. That's It's a tiny shift. Or there's a there's a wonderful tiny shift in the Jack Nicholson monologue in um, A Few Good Men that you can look for. But there's there's just a little shift where you can go from your shoulders being forward to your shoulders being back. That it, Again, if you just do that, it doesn't mean much, but if you do that and it's a shift through a thoughtful space where you know why you're shifting and you're aware of your body and you're, you're conscious and not necessarily while they're filming, but as you've practiced this thing, you're conscious of how your body's doing these things. It just becomes more meaningful on film, just having that bodily awareness. And most things are, are working through that kind of stuff, like with Alexander Technique, working on it doing it. And then when it comes time to actually act, you have to forget about it. I mean, that's mm. most acting technique, right? Yeah. And Alexander works the same way. It's, it's not about what are you got, how are you going to apply this to a role or on, on screen necessarily, but what does it mean to me if I shift my head two degrees? Can I feel a difference? Does it have any meaning? But a lot of it is who's teaching you. And if, if your vocabularies line up and if it makes sense to you and if it's not, then you go, okay, this isn't for me. And, and you go on to somebody else. I mean, that's, yeah. That's how doesn't, it doesn't mean 
you're wrong doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means it, it's not lining up. No, sir. It means they're wrong every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say that, though. I don't want to, you know. <laughs> So I am uh, curious too about your take since you, you do watch your, I can't watch myself act, which really sucks because I also uh, sometimes have to edit myself acting. Um, and those projects take much longer to get through. Um, but you watch the scene as a film goer. And of course, as studying yourself, whenever the scene ends, it never occurred to me that maybe the accountant dies. But then as I was pulling the scene up, there was a commenter that was like, what's great is you really don't know if he lives or dies. And I was like, holy crap, the accountant could die. I don't know. So do you have a feeling of whether or not your guy walks away or not? Yeah. Now we're deep into, well, I say spoiler territory. Um, We do give a spoiler alert at the beginning of the episode. Some real inside baseball. Yeah. So my character is not in the book. I'm one of the few characters that's actually not in the book. The, the, the book, the movie hues really closely to the book, but, um, in the book he goes in and he shoots the, um, Stephen root character. And he just kind of talks to him on the ground as he's dying. And he says, I, this actually isn't in the movie. He says, you know, why you shouldn't have hired, you picked the one right tool. That's the line from the scene. But before he says the one right tool, and he said this when we were shooting and, um, he says it in the book, but I think it's cut out. He goes, so I use birdshot so I don't shatter the glass. And he points to the glass, which is pocked with, with uh, birdshot shells. You know, he doesn't use a pistol or he doesn't use a, a, a single bullet. He says that's his example of the one right tool because he, he knows he's on a top floor of an office building. So that's why he shoots the guy with birdshot, wow. um, which is a really twisted. <laughs> but anyway, he ends up – so in, in, um, in the movie, he delivers that to me he's then he says you know you pick the one right tool i say oh okay <laughs> then i say are you going to shoot me if which again now i did not realize was funny but i got a big laugh in the audition he says that depends do you see me and i say that's where the scene ends because mm-hmm. do you see me and it's sort of left but when we were shooting it and in the script and all the way through he says do you see me and i say no it always ended with no. I would say no before the cut. In fact, we did one take. We had done it a few times. Too. He goes, you know, well, that depends. Do you see me? And that's another great pause. And I could go and kind of realize. And I would go, no. Cut. Do you see me? No. Cut. We do a few takes, uh, you know, maybe just a couple. And then in one take, it was kind of great because I, I was getting used to creepy sugar just being, <laughs> oh, that's Javier. I know who that is. It's, you know. And he goes, uh, do you see me? And I said, no. And nobody called cut. And he kind of leaned in extra. And he said, do you see me? And I thought, no. I just went, no, again. I said, I don't, I'm pretty sure I gave you the right answer before. I like, it was, but it was so fun as an actor because I thought, I, I don't want to say another line. The, the line is no, you know, but it was, so that was the improv was to basically just repeat those two lines. But anyway, so that established that basically I gave him the right answer. And when I went into my makeup trailer on on set, they said, oh, you're number four or something like that. And I said, what do you mean? They go, oh, you're the fourth person he meets that he doesn't kill. <laughs> so, oh. But in the movie, like they were tracking the number – or third or fourth, I've never really – but um, <laughs> but in the movie, of course, they cut me saying no, which I have no problem with. It's a brilliant edit. They took out one of my lines – but um, it's such a good edit because it leaves it ambiguous. And it's funny you say that, Wes, because I think 
if we were to do a poll, most people think I die. They think, do you see me as basically a rhetorical question mm. like that? Yeah, you're going to, of course, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> you. You know who I am. But when we shot, it was it was left like I could give him the right answer. And some people believe that. And maybe maybe that's sort of a test for if you're an optimist or a pessimist. But um, I think most people think I die, but it is left ambiguous. But but during shooting and all the way up until I saw it at the premiere, I thought I lived. And then I thought, well, maybe not. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm not going to get that spinoff movie I was hoping for. <laughs> the accountant. <laughs> no country for accountants. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you live. Uh, yeah, that was always my impression. Yeah, I think you I, live because he he's he doesn't give a shit if you see him. He doesn't care. He's not afraid of anything. Do you see me? It's for you to answer that question. Not he doesn't care who sees him. He's he's going into a built top story of a building with a, a a shotgun with a giant silencer on it. Uh, yeah, he doesn't give a shit who sees him. Like, <laughs> so he's not worried about the accountant seeing him. So I think you live. No, and there is not some a precedent. real silencer, by the way. <laughs> not a, not a real silencer. It's actually, super loud. Yeah, that's the <laughs> story. Well, that's you want to hear that's that that's a little bit of a long story, but it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, of especially with Stephen Root, just you get, you're in a scene with Stephen Root, and you never get to exchange a word with him. He's just dead the entire time. Right. Well, it was so dumb is that when I showed up to the fitting, they did a fitting, you know, months before I because I was at the end of the shooting schedule, so we do this fitting, you know, months before I go out to to set. Um, and they said, oh, are you excited? Everybody's so nice. I mean, you, you couldn't have a more um, chill and and eager and fun group than, than working with those guys. I mean, everybody, their costume designer all the way down. But Mary Zophris, the she was like, are you excited? You get to meet um, Javier Bardem? Yeah. And she goes, oh, and Steven Root? And I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, but I thought, I was like, yeah, but I don't really get to meet him because he dies right away. Not even considering that of course, he stays alive the whole time. And on set all day, we're going to hang right. out and talk and stuff. But they didn't even somehow I just thought, I'm not really going to get to meet him because he dies so quickly. But once we get there, I actually, you know, got to hang out with, with Stephen Root quite a bit. And he is great fun to talk with. I mean, talk about a million stories. Um, but so we're doing that scene. Yeah. And he's we've already done the shot at the beginning because the first shot is where the, all the blood's gurgling up and everything. And we're not a part of that, but, um, cause he has to, he's wearing an actual rig with hoses and they have all the blood spurting. out. I, I, they filmed a lot more than even ends up in the movie. And I remember we're all watching cause it's on a, a stage, a sound stage, but we're all watching in the monitor. And I, I think Mary or somebody has her hand over her mouth. We're laughing. So, cause you can hear all this, all the, the actual pneumatics of the hoses pumping out the blood and you see Steven Root just gurgling. But in that moment, it's hilarious. So she's <laughs> holding her hand over her mouth to not ruin it. Cause we're, even though there's not going to be any sound, but she just doesn't want to distract Steven. Root. <laughs> but anyway, so we go to do the scene, we get that set up. Yeah. And he's, he's so fun. And it's, I, again, I'm worked up because I know that I'm out of my league but also it's just so fun. And he says like, what do you think's going on? I said, well, here's what I like to think is that you are firing me. So him coming in and killing you is a real good news, bad news kind of situation for me <laughs> because, you know, I mean, you're dead, but 
nobody knows that I'm fired. Maybe. And so he thought, so we were just screwing around with it, just having fun. So he's at the beginning of the scene, he's always going, yeah, this isn't working out. You really, <laughs> he's super fun. And he's just improvising under his breath, all this stuff about my poor job performance and hygiene and, you know, and he's relaxed with it. Yeah. Nobody's being method at all. He's just laughing about it, but he's excited because they have behind him a mattress and he's got to do this big move where he gets shot and he falls back onto the mattress. He's, he, there's a gun in his desk, or there's supposed to be a gun in his desk. So he scrambles to get that gun out of his desk as soon as he sees Sugar, but he's not able to, and he gets up and then he's got to do this big fall. So they sort of practice that a little bit, and, and, and Steven's very excited about it because it's just a big physical, you know, in, in these movies where we have to be restrained to get to do a big physical thing. And he's an old theater actor. He's real excited to do it. And they get it set up. And then it's a, it's a dolly shot coming in on, on um, the back of him as he comes in and raises his gun and everything. Then they come around and go, okay, we have earplugs. Uh, do you want earplugs? I said, no, I think I'll be okay. And they go, oh, no, we weren't. Sorry. I asked it as a question. Put in these earplugs. <laughs> like, this isn't an option. That's not a real silencer. There's about to be a shotgun going off. Uh, okay put in the earplugs and we get all set up he's practiced the thing and so they go one two three action he walks in raises the gun Stephen Root scrambling at the desk oh he gets up and then click nothing happens gun doesn't fire cut 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 okay reset reset back we gotta go back to one everybody's reset okay sorry about that here we go again you know action comes in gun goes up Stephen Root scrambling for the desk you go uh, click gun doesn't go again Oh, okay. Now it's a problem, you know, cut prop guy comes in. He sort of checks it out. It's a little bit of a concern. You know, nobody's, everybody's chill still, but it's still just like this gun has to fire. This is pretty critical to the scene. Um, so we do it again. Okay. We get reset. I don't know if they bring in another gun yet, but then we go, okay, here we go. Action comes in, gun goes up to Steve Root scrambling, but and it click again, gun doesn't go off. And Steven Root goes, God, it's like they're killing me a little bit every time. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a great lie because that's what it did. Because we're doing, and I'm I'm trying to, I'm getting ready. I'm turning around, getting ready to respond to this gun. So we do it maybe four times, maybe just three times. I don't remember. But, you know, by the time they come in, then they get this gun worked out and it comes in. But by that point, we're all expecting the gun not to go off, really. I mean, it's enough that we've gone through this. So he comes in, blah, 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 gun comes up. And that gun fires, and it is so loud, and it is so close to my head, and I just uh, just lose control of my – I mean, I just completely – oh, my God. <laughs> it's horrifying. I mean, you see me in the movie. It's that take. I slide out of the chair a little bit. It scares the living shit out of me. <laughs> like that's – again, I don't want to tell actors it has to be real, but that is nothing but pure, actual, holy shit that is loud. <laughs> I have never – heard because i'm not a round guns and yeah it was just great because it just completely cratered me and then i stand up and he you know he finally got to do his big fall but i think we did one take of that i mean i don't think we shot that gun again um but it was wow. and in hindsight I've, I've always kind of thought did they do that on purpose like because it got me right. so relaxed right. i didn't predict that gun going off which i'm sure i was doing in early takes was that just a brilliant thing those directors did to get me to the right place I don't think it is because that's not their style. Hmm. 
But I would love, I would love to see Ethan in a restaurant sometime and just ask him because if <laughs> it w- if it was, it was so brilliant because I just got so relaxed and was just so like, hey, I'm just sitting in an office just shooting the shit with Stephen Root and holy shit, that is loud. <laughs> God. And so it worked perfectly. And then, then they have to clear out the room. They there's actual smoke from the gun. They have to get in fans and stuff. So there's five or 10 minutes before we reset and start to do the, the two shot. And the trick of acting the whole rest of the day is to get yourself back to the, that three seconds after a gun just went off in your ear. Then it's like, you've been relaxed. You've gone to craft services. You're yeah, that went well. And it's like, okay, let's go right back to that moment where you, your stomach dropped four floors. You go, okay, well, here we go. So just physically getting yourself back to that point becomes the acting trick. Holy but anyway, God. that's the long story of it's not a real silencer. It was a very, very loud gun. <laughs> do you think so? How did you get back to that then? Like, do you think that that was a good thing that there was some time in between so that you could kind of just like maybe bring yourself back down a little bit? I mean, let, let's say that whole thing was going to be one shot. Could you have done what you did? acted the way that you did oh i think it would have been great yeah i think if somehow they had just had camera coverage everywhere to my mind i mean i I don't know that but i because i was really and it was just like holy man what happened i you know i think the downtime was just a a product of because it was a full reset because the for that that sort of opening shot it's a tracked dolly so they have to get all of that out of the room and reset the cameras to do the the two shot they had one shot behind my head my hair was a little longer at that point, and they had combed it out to that kind of 80s thing. They had, I remember they had one shot over my shoulder that they didn't end up using. And Ethan said, I just think it's funny where he's looking, Sugar's looking down at Stephen Root, and then I'm looking at Sugar, and they had the shot looking over my shoulder. And Ethan said, I just think it's funny because the back of their hair looks the same. <laughs> So, you know, they're setting up all that. I thought, well, that's funny, but they didn't end up using that shot. But I think it was just a product of that. But so for me, it's then you know, when they're getting ready to call action, it's, it's, it's mostly just breath. I mean, you, you just have to start taking shallow breaths to raise up your heart rate and get, you know, try to get to that point so that you're just a a jittery inside, you know, and I'm caffeinated enough most of the time that, that jitters are always pretty easy to call up, but yeah, it's getting to that jittery point. And then when they call action, fighting it, because the whole scene is really about trying not to move. I mean, basically, that's mostly what I'm doing the whole time is trying. There's a choice of, of do you run away or do you not run away? And it's not really much of a choice. I mean, it's fight or flight, but it's not really even fight. It's just, you know, hope that I can negotiate this. You know, you would get shot if he just ran out. But on a gut level, if somebody just shoots somebody right in front of you, part of you wants to run. So it, it's there's always one leg in the scene that's sort of wanting to walk out the door that I'm fighting against as I have this casual conversation about <laughs> whether or not he should have hired the Mexicans, you know. Nice. I think oh, I got so tuned into what you were saying. I forgot my, my oh, <laughs> I, I assume there's nothing. Uh, uh, I mean, you're not this kind of nerd, but uh, you're you're the first person I think that's been on set with Roger Deakins that I know. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, is there anything that stands out yes. about working with Deakins? I was thinking about that when you were talking about um, setting up the, uh, when I was, when I was talking about, I was thinking that when I was talking um, <laughs> about the dolly and everything, it's like, yeah. that was Deakins in the room, you know, he's setting it up and, and I knew, no, I'm enough of a nerd to go. Yeah. I'm, I mean, yeah, not only I'm in a room with Javier Bardem, not yet an Oscar winner, but, deeply respected actor, 
Ethan Cohen, Joel Cohen, Stephen Root, one of the greatest character actors of this or any generation. I'm already like, and then, you know, I've been costumed by Mary Zofres and here comes Roger Deakins. And, uh, but all of that, as I say it now, I'm like, holy shit, how did I even breathe? I mean, none of that makes sense that I could even function in that room. But on the day, they're just people who love their job and are great at it. And they're doing it simply and straightforward. Nobody seems stressed out. Everybody's having a ball. That just told me, like, when you're when you're an artist at the top of your game, I think as artists, we tend to think that there's some value in in stress and, and just beating ourselves up. Not those guys. They don't do that. I mean, I hear they do that in the editing room, but on the set and probably in the planning, but on the set, they're just shooting what they came there to shoot and they know what they're doing and it's solid and everybody's having a great time. I mean, I thought this is the biggest thing I've ever worked on with the greatest artist I've ever worked with. And it's the most chill I've ever been on a set. Like it was just easy. And Deacon's had, I mean, yeah, Deacon, he just, his presence is very sort of, Hey, how are you doing? You know, he's, he's that big white haired guy and you knew who he was. There was a guy who drove us around because we were in uh, Santa Fe and he would drive us to and from set, but he had come from Marfa. They shot the first two weeks in Marfa and he lived in Marfa. And what I remember him saying was he just got so wrapped up. He said to watch Roger Deacons photograph my town to watch, to see somebody capture the beauty of that place in the way that he had seen it was so meaningful to him. I mean, he was like, you know, this 19 year old kid. And I thought that was such a nice way of saying it to that you know, that, that beauty of that place had meaning to him, but it's hard to photograph. It's hard to capture. And he said, Roger Deakins got it and you just see it and feel it. And he said, that was really, so he was there for the whole run. He was, he got, moved out to Santa Fe to be a driver on the set for a while. But, um, yeah, so I don't know much about it. He was very quiet, knew what he was doing. Didn't get in anybody's way. Didn't cause any trouble. DPs tend to be they, they can be pretty chill for whatever reason. I mean, even on commercials and stuff, I'm always like, why is DP always like have a German accent or like, there's always some for like, <laughs> they always have an accent. They're always foreign. And they're, Roger Deakins is just the most like white haired, super chill guy you've ever seen. Um, and they, they can seem a little worked up or a little, you know, agitated or angry. Not, nope. Not Here's just a guy who knows what he's doing. Here you go. Looks good. And we were on the soundstage for my scene, so it was pretty controlled as well. But I was able to go out and watch them shoot the scene at the coffee shop between Wells and the and the local sheriff and all of it. You know, So I watched them shoot other stuff. But again, because they were so nice, because I was flown out three days early because they had it would, that summer was very rainy in New Mexico and they kept having sets rain out. So I was flown out on what's called cover set which meant that if they had a set rain out, they could go to the soundstage where we were. So I had three days and they were like, you can just chill in Santa Fe. I was like, okay. But Mary Zofris, costume designer said, he's been to Santa Fe. Let's get him out to the set. And so she, she got it and you know, which is very nice and so considerate. So I bet he wants to watch them film this stuff. Like that she was aware of that and and made space for it. it was really nice. Yeah. So I could go out and watch Tommy Lee Jones work and, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sean. And just totally like, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's just chill. I mean, of course we'll let you. Because I didn't want to ask that because I feel like, oh, I don't want to look like the. But she's like, of course you want to go see that. You're on a <laughs> yeah. big movie. I was like, well, thank you. Yeah, no, she's I'm really great because I got to go. And then I got to. And that was in Albuquerque. So I got to ride in a car with uh, Beth Grant, who plays uh, 
the mother-in-law, mm, um, who's a great character actor, amazing. and I got to talk to her. You know, I got to really have an experience with it, even though I, you know, my time on on set proper was just a few hours. Yeah, she really made that happen. She That's what I say. People cancer. who love what they're doing are having fun. Yeah, she got the cancer, <laughs> dude. So, are you auditioning right now? How's that looking? Uh, you with a? You still have your agent? Um, are you focused on teaching? I'm. Uh, I yeah, I do still have my agent in theory. I haven't been auditioning. I sort of ended up stepping. You know, if you and you know how this is, you're mm -hmm. kind of you either have a career or you have to do something else. And it just reached the point in raising my kids where the something else had to be a job that had health insurance and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and it's hard to balance that. So I kind of stepped away from, from auditioning. Um, and I, the nice part of being a man is that as we still stay castable as we get older, I hope that gets more and more true for women. But, yeah. um, so I'm excited to get back to that, uh, at, you know, as time goes on, but now it's, it's teaching and, um, yeah, it's doing some coaching and been working with a local agent in Austin who's starting up an endeavor. So I'm going to do some set coaching as, as they kind of work on uh, casting reels and stuff. So I stay active with them. That keeps me keeps it. It feeds the bug a little bit, but I'll be excited to get back to auditioning one day. So if, if someone asked you if you wanted to do a couple of hours on a short film and they begged you for that, do you feel like that would be? It's reach. a hard pass. It's yeah. a hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what, listen. I love filming. I love acting. If you want me to come act in something, I'm there for it. If you want me to come audition for it and then go to a second audition and then a callback and then I get to ask Tom Hanks if he wants water with his meal, that's the hard part of the business, right? And that's where I was. Like even after No yeah. Country, you think like, oh, I guess I'm a star now. I'm not a star. I'm not, I'm not anything. And I, the last audition I turned down was my agent going, Oh, they asked about you. And it's this Tom Hanks movie. And I said, great. Yeah. And it, the, and this was before self taping had really come in to tell you the truth. But, um, so the auditions on Wednesday and then there's a call back on Friday and a, a read with the director on Saturday or whatever. And I said, okay, what's the part? Oh, it's a waiter. Yeah. I don't think I can, you know, take three days off of my regular day job to do this, you know, so it's no country for old men, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you ever had, if you ever say, Hey, I just want you to come film something, no audition required. I am there. Uh, you, yeah. With bells on. I love, well, I love doing it. And I, I even love the auditioning, but then it, I have a whole new direction of writing that I'm about to go through. <laughs> Cause yeah, I think you're just incredible. And yeah, I would love to have you on set. I'll reach out. Uh, I, I'm shooting a project next month. And I was like, man, I need someone really good for this uh, part. And yeah, you're top of mind. So I'll, I'll reach out and see if you're interested. And uh, you know where to find me. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to play. I love to play. <laughs> That's awesome. That means that all means a lot because Wes doesn't like anybody. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I've misanthrope is definitely, you know, <laughs> what I've called him behind his back um, many times. Oh my I don't think that's true. It, it was, it, yeah, Wes was always fun to have in class because somebody's engaged. And we, we had a few, there's always some uh, interesting characters in an acting class. And I remember, yeah, Wes, <laughs> I think I remember you actually texting me one time while somebody else was arguing with me, just going, oh God, this is great. Right. I, <laughs> I kept arguing <laughs> Yeah, I think it is. That is 100% something I did. Yeah. 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 Which was awesome. 
thank you so much for making time. I mean, we just grabbed you for like an hour. So, um, like I said, no, that's my apologies. I always talk too much. So no, um, this is amazing. This is the best hour I've had in ages. I usually get, uh, Todd just frowning at me for, you know, 45 minutes. So this is much better than, than that. No, he's, he's got a lovely frown. I can see it. It's, (laughs) I think it's, don't knock it. That's all I'm doing. That's all I ever do. (laughs) Tell me, tell me this is a, late in the game to ask this tell me the podcast yeah the name of it we've never told me yeah so this is it's called the pestle the pestle podcast um and what we do is a lot of what you and i and todd have been doing like discussing the film filmmaking techniques approaches um so everything you've said i'm keeping like this is all gold for what we we like to do um and you crept in as i was talking about the editing the hard cuts and the way it kind of engages with the with the the, the audience um, and so that's it. And it's a mortar and pestle idea, right? You're, we're grinding up a film. Um, and yeah, so the pestle podcast, I'll send you a link. Uh, oh, let me tell you one other, just again, because we're at, but this is an interesting film fact that you can talk about. This is not something I have to talk about, but if just from that, I thought of this when I was, cause I, I understood that to be the podcast is um, they are very strict to their script. Right. And like that said, that Josh Brolin line is the one improv line. At that closing scene where he tells his wife about the dream, mm-hmm. which I, I think is unbelievable, in the script, all the way through the working script, because they would send like blue pages and updated scripts and stuff, because I was, <laughs> nothing would change, but they would FedEx out a new script to me. All the way through that, as he describes the dream, they would cut to an actual shots of the dream. They shot it, you know, you would see a man on a horse and he's got the horn with the fire, all of that. It was the intention was to have it shown kind of dreamlike. And I remember when I first saw the movie and I don't know if they shot that, I don't know when the decision was made, but when I first saw the movie and it's actually just him telling the story and they never cut away from it. And I'm in this movie. I've been thinking about it for a year because it took a long, long time to come out because I shot in August. It didn't come out well until November of the next year because they ended up delaying Everybody thought it was not going to be a big deal of a movie while we were shooting. Everybody's like, this is too weird. My, that driver guy told me, this is not Fargo. This is not going to be one of their hits. This is one of their smaller movies. It's super weird. Then they keep delaying the release so it can come out for Oscar consideration. We're like, well, maybe it is a good movie. So, But it's been forever. So I'm all I can think about is, am I in this movie anymore? Did I get cut? You know, It's a big deal to me. By the time we're watching the movie, it's so engaging to me that I'm completely in the movie. I almost forget my scene is coming up. It's so good. It's so goddamn good. And there's no music. So you're just so locked into it. And it comes to that scene. And he, but I remember he starts, and I thought, oh, they don't cut away from him. And he just tells that whole story. And you're just jammed in. I mean, you're just so locked on it. And then he stops and she goes, and then what happened? And it cuts to him, and it cuts to her. It cut to, and I remember going, oh, please let it end right there. And it went to black. And, I, and I just, that is the best. I love that ending. But that is not just from the filmmaking perspective. That's not how it was scripted. They, they In the script, they thought there would be the need for that visual aid. And like I don't know when that was abandoned, um, if it was in the editing room or, or if it was somewhere during the shooting process. That way, we don't need to shoot this. Tommy Lee Jones is, is pretty good at what he does. But I just think that's such a... Little choices like that. It's not these big choices that are really obvious, but just little bitty choices like cutting me saying no or 
not cutting away from him and letting you really hold on him that really make a whole movie. And Carter Burwell having the the wherewithal to go, I don't think I should add music to this. Like they sent it to him to score. And he said, you know what? I think we would do better probably to not have. I didn't know they wanted to have music. Wow. Well, I mean, they worked with him. That, uh, this is from an interview. I mean, this isn't firsthand knowledge, but yeah, because sure, I, sure. I read, I was reading everything I could in those 14 months leading up to it, you know? Yeah. Is, is they sent it to him and said, what do you think, you know, for the score? And he just said, I, we could do some percussive stuff or something or maybe nothing. And they kind of went, Oh yeah, nothing. Cause that's, I mean, name, talk yourself out movie. of a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did say he, yeah, I think he even got an Oscar nomination. There's enough environmental noise that gets picked up that it counts oh. as a score. Like he picks up like the clicking of a, of a windmill or something. Yeah. So there is an official score, but, you don't, but name <laughs> any other movie that has zero score for all intents and purposes. Yeah. I can't think of any. Yeah. Um, it's but, I mean, what this is that? But it feels so incredibly grounded because of that. The sound design suddenly makes the experience breathe with all this tension. The lack of music invites you to really be hyper aware of everything that's yeah. happening on screen instead of like pushing you, Mickey Mousing you into an emotion. They just uh, yeah. create the space for you to fill your emotions so in. Good. Although I did see it went up Draft House had a special screening with like a steak dinner. So they actually brought out plates and <laughs> and it was like... 10 minutes into it, everybody's like, this is the worst idea ever because it's all ding, ding, ding. everybody's trying to cut their steak and not interrupt the movie. And it was just, oh, yeah, this, oh. we didn't think this through. Sorry, guys. That, I'm so glad you told us that because at, before you joined, we the clip that Wes played was the opening of the movie, and which, which was funny because it's exposition without being exposition-like, I guess, you know? And there's just, it's just shots of the landscape. Right. And and I feel like what it made me do was to picture everything like like you're reading a book. When you read a book, everybody thinks books are better than movies a lot of times. And I think a lot of times they are because you have to paint the picture in your own head. You know, it says she wore a red shirt. Well, then you picture the red shirt. Well, he's telling the story and we're just seeing still shots of landscape. And so we're picturing the story. And then at the end, he tells the story. And instead of showing us, we are picturing, you know, the guy on the horse in the snow, like riding forward, like we're picturing that. And then it ends. It's almost like it's our story in our head at the book ending it from the beginning to the end. It's, it's, I'm so glad you told us that that was a decision that they made in order to, to tell the story in a, in a, in a way where that it's like inviting. You know? Well, I think you're right. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it looks like, you know, from any sort of uh, objective perspective, it matters what he's seeing. Yeah, you're seeing it, but you're seeing it, I think, by that point through his eyes, you know, I mean, you should be. And again, the movie's about Bell. I mean, people who are mad when Moss gets killed, like, oh, it's because it was never about him. It's about how his story affects Sheriff Bell. So, yeah, to see it through his eyes and understand, like, oh, he's seeing uh, the horn of fire and everything. God, then he just goes, then I woke up. Well, I hold my breath now. I just held my breath even thinking about it. I yeah. held my breath. I mean, it's so great. Yeah, it's great. this whole story is really fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of ways to slice it. I mean, between Sugar um, doing what he's doing and the sheriff trying to grapple with all that, there's kind of this ongoing conversation just about the nature of um, life and events that happen, right? It's kind of a question about, is it luck? Is it fate? 
Um, is there some kind of new kind of uh, evil out there? Um, and to some degree, what money role does money play in, in, in any of that? And I think there's a bit of a the, the kind of rhetorical question that the movie's asking is, does it really matter? Right? The sugar doing a coin toss for your life. Like, uh, if it's such a trivial view and, and an abysmal view about the value of life. But at the same time, how much does that really matter? And, and luck is so that's invoking the idea of luck and gambling, right? Um, same thing when the first time we meet Stephen Root's character, who he's called like the man who hires Carson Wells. That's the name of his, his, his character in the credits. And when we meet Carson Wells and he goes in there and he's about to leave and he's like, I counted the floors to this building from the street. There's one missing, right? And that's kind of invoking, I think, anyway, the 13th floor, right? Um, and there's a, a whole backstory with that, of, you know, lucky number 13 and the, the floor counting stuff. Um, but then immediately after that, Llewellyn checks into a, a, a hotel, um, into room 213. And so it's kind of invoking that same uh, numerology again. And thinking about the opening monologue about the sheriff who's afraid about what he's going to encounter, right? He doesn't want to encounter something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay, I'll be a part of this. Um, and then you get towards the end of the film where you meet Ellis and Ellis is telling the story about his uncle Mac getting shot in his doorway by native Americans in 1909. And to Ellis in his mind, this is a story about pure evil that you can't account for. Now, of course, in modern days, we can imagine that, Whatever happened back then was probably more complicated than the way he views it. But for him, that's yeah. his uncle. His uncle got killed in his doorway. And then he, what does he tell the sheriff, you know, uh, Bell? He tells him, what you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. To think that you can control life and death and good and evil and that it had somehow swirls around you and what you're deciding. And then, of course, Carla Jean comes home after burying her mother to find Shigur uh, just sitting and waiting. Oh, God. A heartbreak. And what's so fascinating, um, and I think it's just building on every other encounter with Shigur, is that she doesn't run. She doesn't fight back. She won't even call the coin toss to save her life. Right? The coin don't have no say. It's just you. And what does he say? I got here the same way the coin did. And to his mind, this is inevitable. It just is. And therefore, she dies anyway. Same thing with your character. So your character doesn't flee. Like so many I, aspects of this are about how do you respond when death comes? I, Shigur seems to be some kind of uh, physical manifestation of death through this psychopath. And it's just kind of asking this question of, does it really matter how you respond when death comes to you? Um, you can run if you want, like Brolin's character, Llewellyn. It didn't really matter. Death is going to catch him one way or another. And so there's this kind of morbid uh, inevitability to it. But what's really fascinating, too, is whether or not you beg for your life or you run or you sit still and accept it, even Shigur immediately you know, drives through a green light gets blindsided and what's so good about that shot is we don't see it coming either right we the window we're looking at there's nothing happening but he still gets smashed and it's such a great kind of on the nose way of saying it's always coming whatever's coming for you has always been coming it took 22 years for this coin to get to you right now like and then you get to the end of the film 
and the sheriff is telling this dream of his father, right? These two dreams. Uh, the first one, this is really cool. The father gave him money. And what does he say? I, I think I lost it. He doesn't even care. The The money doesn't matter to the sheriff. It does, it's yeah. completely irrelevant. His purpose, his calling in life is all that really matters. And then he tells us the story about the second dream. And, and this one, he sees his father carrying a horn. And then his father goes on ahead of him, right? And he just knows he's going to go up and he's going to make a fire. And he knows that when he catches up with his father, he's going to be there waiting for him. Oh, God. And then his, his wife asks him, he's like, well, then what happened? And then I woke up. That's all a dream. Like you can imagine whatever you want for yourself in the future about what's waiting for you up ahead. Does it matter? I don't know. I don't know that I have like the perfect pointed theory or philosophy about what this movie is really trying to do, but there is something swirling in the ether just about fate and the inevitable results of life. And once again, invokes Macbeth, you know, uh, life is a tale told by an idiot, right? Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. <laughs> like uh, there's some element to that. Yeah. I don't know the last, and I want to get your thoughts on this trend since you, since you're still hanging out, I was like, I'm just going to go through yeah, this. I, just, I, I weirdly, I have, yeah. And so my last very thought open day. <laughs> is factoring in money being the catalyst for so much that happens in this film between obviously Llewellyn finding it and just deciding I'm going to get this money. It's going to be me. It's going to uh, change my life, whatever he's thinking. You, then you have Llewellyn coming across the border back from Mexico and he asked, uh, or maybe he's going to Mexico and they're looking at him bloodied, these college kids who are on their way back from Mexico. And they're like, were you in a car accident? And they had to ask him twice because he's not answering. And what's fascinating as I've seen plays out, there's some concern, but when money shows up, their greed takes over, right? Uh, show me the money. No, let him hold the money. And there's just not enough. What anything he offers, it's really not enough. And then he asks for the beer and the kid immediately. Well, how much? This guy's bleeding out <laughs> and he's just like money. Right. And then later in the film, right. Sugar gets in the car wreck at the end. The kid initially doesn't want the money. He's like, hell, mister, you can take the shirt. Yeah. He takes the money. He, the guy, Sugar still insists, take the money. You didn't see me. And so this kid doesn't want the money. He takes it and then immediately won't share it with his friend. Right. <laughs> like there's something that money does to so many people and for me i'm probably a little unfortunately a little more on the uh, uh the sheriff ed bell train where i just don't really care which is crazy i'm like a diehard free market capitalist but on my personal life i just don't care that much about money um and i let it go all the time maybe too easily and i spend it all on film <laughs> um, right but, <laughs> But like I could have a house, a massive house by now. And yet here I am in an apartment. And so I don't know. What do you think this movie's trying to say? If it's trying to say anything at all? Um, what's your takeaway just about the way people respond to death when it comes knocking? Yeah. What do you got, man? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, the one that, as you say, all those lines, all those, you know, is I think I talked about the great writing when I say great writing and I was crediting the Coen brothers because it is, and all of my dialogue was written by the Coen brothers, but I mean, everything Sugar says to me and, and that coin toss scene and uh, that opening monologue, and, and those are almost verbatim from the book. I mean, Cormac mm -hmm. McCarthy's use of dialogue, and this was the Coen brothers first adaptation, right? Is they said, this dialogue sounds like it was written by us. They didn't say that, but that's what, you know, 
And it does like they could have written this movie. It's it has it has a, a cadence. It's not just what they say. It just has that sort of that uh, that's vanity. Uh, Ellis's speech is just it's poetry on top of being, you know, it's not trying to be naturalistic language. It, that's a that's a pretty articulate guy to be living out there in that dump. You know, it's it's just such good writing. And that coin toss scene is right out of the book. I mean, I remember reading it and being like, it's a, I've never seen anything quite line up so much. And that actor's incredible. I've, I've, he's in some new movie that I want to see. But the guy who plays the gas station attendant, mm-hmm. I don't know his name. I should. Um, I don't either. I've seen him in a lot. He's unbelievably good in that scene. That is a hard scene um, to be that good in. I mean, talk about good use of – I mean, he swallows at one point, and it's the most emotional thing I've seen in a movie, like just the way he swallows. It's just everything is so filled with meaning, every little thing he does. But um, you know, that's Cormac McCarthy writing. Um, and and if you read Cormac McCarthy, it, it all has that sort of fatalist or – you know, it, it's not a glowing view of the world. I mean, good lord um, – the road. I don't know if you've right. read that or seen it. Oh, seen the film. Oh yeah, yeah. As, yeah. I mean, he's he's not a he's a bleak guy. He's not a sunny character. <laughs> but I, I, no country. There's almost a relief to me. I so I think what you're getting at makes sense. Is that it can be so many things. I mean, I I think the only mistake. I see, you know, I think people make with this film, and it's not everybody gets to do what they want to do. I'm not judging it, but is that they see it sort of as a thriller about Moss finding money and, and trying to get away with it, and you're bound to come out disappointed then because it's not going to happen. So if you if you don't sort of see it from at least a character point of view or a more broadly philosophical point of view, yeah, the story just feels like it sets you up for one thing and then turns away from you. And, and people get weirdly resentful, like, oh, you think you're so arty? Like, like the film's <laughs> treating them like they're dumb by doing this trick. Mm. And that, that I, I don't know. It's always something like, if you didn't like it, you didn't like it. But I don't think anybody was trying to insult you. It's just didn't work for you. But it's open. As long as you don't do that, it's sort of where you are in life. You can find what you need from it. I mean, No Country for Old Men speaks to, you know, for me, that's Bell. And that, like you say, it's this idea of how do I deal with what's coming? And I death, certainly. And then just the world becoming unknowable more and more. As I age, even what I knew to be evil looks different that happened to Ellis, it's, you know, and, and I think now I've, I find myself all the time going, oh, this is a new, this is a new kind of evil. I mean, we elected Donald Trump. This has never happened. There's never been anything this insane in the history. Of course there has been, you know, oh, you, all these things have either politically or with these wars, you're like, this is, boy, we're really at the end times. But people have felt that for, yeah. in so many cycles for so many years and that 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 Ellis speech is the one that really sticks out to me. And then and then, like you say, then at the end, because I knew he'd be up there waiting for me, trying to come to some peace with that kind of fatalism is no matter no matter how well this goes, it ends with you dying. Yeah. The best life you're going to have ends in a casket um, or in an urn, you know, but it, there's there's no getting out of that. So it it's sort of how you navigate that path. And yeah, when he says that's va- I go back to that a lot in my head of going, oh, this is vanity. My stress over this individual moment 
if it's sort of broad, uh, you know, cultural moment, or even just my individual moments of, oh, I, you know, this is going badly for me, or this, or whatever's happening in this relationship or this work thing, that's it's all vanity. It's all it has. What was occurring to me as you were talking? Sorry, I'm finding my way back to the actual thought I was going to say when I started talking. Um, is at the center of it, you have Shigur, who. Yeah, everybody else is corrupted by money, mm. confused by money. Uh, Shigur, he's getting paid, but I love a movie where the villain is the only one with a moral center, albeit an immoral center, you know, but it, yeah. he has a code where no one else really does. Bell doesn't, Bell thought he had a code, but he doesn't know where it fits into this what seems like a new world to him, or he doesn't know how, you know, Moss or all these, the kid has a code. You can just have my shirt, but no, I'll take the thing. Everybody is squishy. And yeah, like you say, responding to money often, but, but their moral center is sort of falling apart. But the one that, I mean, Shigur, you almost admire him. You're like this guy, he, when he can give you a coin toss, he gives you the coin toss. Carla Jean's not getting a coin toss. I mean, well, he does offer it to her, but you know, yeah. for most people, it's like, this is what it is. He tells them, um, What's he say to to uh, Wells? He says, "You know, if the code you lived by brought you here, what good was it? Or the, the rule, rule you lived yeah, by?" Maybe yeah. um, he says, "I have a. He's living by a set set of rules. I mean, it, seven. There's a movie seven where Kevin Spacey. That old movie's about moral ambiguity and not knowing anything. And you have one character who has absolute moral purity, or I, I don't want to say moral, but in his mind, he has values." that are clear and precise and he sticks to them and he carries them through completely. He's the personification of evil, but in his mind, I mean, he's the only one, he's not ever questioning it. He's never confused. He's never wonders if he's doing the right thing, even though he's a, you know, serial murderer. And there's just something so wonderful about that, about you find yourself jealous of some aspect of this monster. <laughs> I don't want to be a monster, but God, I wish I could just feel that assured of what I was doing at all times. You know, can can I can I feel that self assured and do good things, or does does that self assurance only come with being a psychopath? I don't know, but um, but that's what I hear when you talk about the money. Is is Sugar gets his money, but that's he's never in it for the money. I mean, he's never presented as a character who's like, oh, if you pay me enough. I mean, Wells says to him, I can have that bag at your feet. I mean, it's done. There's no reason for you to do this. And he's like, no, there's a reason because there's, I have a code that's played out. It's not about getting that bag of money. It's not about getting my paycheck. It's about me doing, living in the world the way I think the world should be. And that involves killing a lot of people. <laughs> it's only that last part that gets really upsetting. <laughs> you know, up until then, you're yeah. like, yeah, all right, good for you. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, sorry. The murder. That part's bad. Awesome. <laughs> yeah just that oh. i'm glad and i'm glad that they don't like when when he goes to the wife uh sorry i won't believe it or anything i know it's taking a lot of your time but when he goes to the wife at the end and we don't hear a, a shot or anything they just cut to outside and then he looks at his boots oh how what a brilliant little piece of just you can't brilliant. do that in a book that's where yeah. I, I books and movies i i think they're both great and I think they're very different. And that this is what this movie does well is it actually hews closer to the book. I like a movie that's different from a book. People get mad about that. I'm like, hey, I read the book. Yeah. yeah. Do something different. Uh, Station Eleven, they did a oh, series yeah. of that. Yeah. I love that book. I love the series. Yeah. They're very different from one another. Mm-hmm. And in such a glorious way. But anyway, uh 
but in a, you can't really do that in a book is have him early in the movie put up his feet to get out of the way of Wells blood. Then 40 minutes later, just have him look at the bottom of his boots. People always say to me, you know, Oh, I want to watch that movie, but it's so violent. I know you're in it, but I'm so scared. I'm like, it's not that violent. You watch this movie and you think it was violent. But if you go back to the number of times you saw actual blood, it's not a lot. There's a guy at the beginning gets killed. You see a little bit of Steven Root, but most of that violence happened in your mind because you saw him check his shoes. You know what happened, but so you sort of feel like it was a really violent movie, but in just terms of actual on-screen violence, it's, I mean, the, the body count is high, but the on-screen body count really isn't. I guess you got the paddle prod guy. I mean, the, the first five minutes go get pretty intense. Pretty ten- <laughs> the, the guy in the motel with the uh, reaching for the lamp <laughs> or his gun. Oh, yeah. The lamp. That arm did not fare well, but otherwise. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> well, in the scene where he's where he's choking the deputy oh, the right sh- at the very yeah, beginning. Yeah. In the book, that is like it gets gro- He describes the karate. And I think when they filmed that in talking to that kid from Marfa, that young man from Marfa, he's like, I think when they filmed that, they really got a lot of it was pretty bloody because he talks about, he has to find the carotid artery and he, you know, that's how he can get him dead quick. And I think they filmed like blood spattering and all this stuff. That's not in the movie. In the movie, you see a lot of it, but then mostly you do that. Great. That top shot of just the boot of the skid marks, boot skid marks. And I was listening again, to you know, there's a decision in the editing room where you go, let's, let's take out all the blood and have black skid marks on the floor. And, but that feels more violent somehow. Yeah, what's that's exactly right. I was listening to Brolin and and Deacons on the the Deacons podcast a, a year or two ago, and they were discussing that that scene because whenever they finished shooting it, they were getting ready to do that nice top down, uh, and they were like, "Should we clean up all these scuff marks? Like, it looks like they've you know this is ten takes of them running rustling around, and uh, maybe that's too much." And they were like, "Nah, we got to keep it. Like that looks." It looks amazing. It looks super violent. So uh, yeah, it works really well. Um, And then, yeah, using it really widely in the edit uh, makes a lot of sense too. Um, So good. Dude, thank you so much for taking time. Um, Great conversation. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm chaperoning this. The kids at the test me festival. And from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., we really just have to sit around and see if they text with they need snacks or something. So I, I had time. I, I appreciate you indulging me for this conversation. It is great. Like I say, I love talking about it. So Dude, so awesome. honored. It's so great to meet you, man. Um, thank you for all the amazing insight. Yeah, please. Yeah, really. Thank you for letting me talk. I do appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Uh, I'll, I'll hit you up soon and see if, uh, if I can steal some of your, some more of your time for a, yeah. a quick project. Nice. You know, you know where to find me. Right. Awesome. Thanks buddy. Cool. Thank you. Bye, Trent. See if I can figure out the leaving part. I got it. <laughs> oh man, what a great dude! Dude, wow. he's the best. I freaking love Trent. Um, yeah, I think that covers it on my end, man. Um, final thoughts? Yeah. It's it's uh, any, uh, no, it's amazing. We've already said everything that we everything. Can, can be said. How this is how you make a movie, man. Yeah, this is sure. it. this is it. Um, well, dope. Uh, what are you going to recommend this week, man? Uh, this mi- Oh yeah, I, I had it, and then where did it go? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna stick with Coen Brothers uh, this week and recommend Fargo. Uh, just a, another another great film from them, and beautifully beautifully acted, and beautifully shot, and amazingly 
well written. Uh, yeah, Fargo. Nice. I am going to recommend a, a book since Cormac McCarthy wrote an incredible film book that got adapted into a, a, an amazing film. There's another book that I read this year that is currently being adapted. Um, it's called Project Hail Mary. If you liked The Martian, it's the same author, Andy Weir. Um, it's a sci-fi. This is very much the complete opposite, polar opposite of No Country. But it's a great read, incredible read. Um, if you like science fiction, it'll take you some, to some really fun places. I'm excited to see what they do with the, with the adaptation, but yeah, project Hail Mary, uh, stay tuned for next week. We're going to take a look at, uh, one of these two movies or a third unlisted movie. Uh, I don't remember either of them. I mean, I know them, but I don't remember what happened in either. Nice. They're the same movie to me in my brain. Okay. Then, uh, we're going to take a look at. Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, because why not? Uh, Deserves got nothing to do with it, Todd. So we're going to stay tuned for that next week. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review. Uh, If there's the kind of film or project you want us to talk about, let us know. If you want to comment on this episode and discuss how amazing Trent is, I will link. uh, I don't know where we can. I forgot to ask him. But I'll link any anything we have for for Trent Moore um, on his technique or his coaching. If you want to coach, you can really teach you some really cool new tricks just to have in your tool bag so that you can explore, you know, become a better actor. I'll I'll link that in the show notes. And and you can find all of that at the pestlepodcast.com slash no country for old men. And our quote of the day is from Carl Jung. We cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate. It oppresses. That's, I think it's a very good quote. I think it's right. I mean, yeah. If how can you improve on something unless you accept where you're at? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that just really stuck out to me. I, and it took me a second to really process it because it's phrased so interestingly, we can't change anything until we accept it. Like, and the, the second half of that condemnation does not liberate. It oppresses like you're just judging something. How does that free or create space to change it? It's so one directional judgment. Yeah. Whereas acceptance is two directional, right? The ability to take something in on its own terms, and then you can create a dialogue or an opportunity to see about what can, uh, what can change or adapt. Um, yeah, that's, that's a yeah. really fascinating uh, thought for sure. Just really quickly, just a, a tiny little thing. So some, some crazy stuff happened at my work uh, this past couple of weeks and I did a um, uh, kind of like a an event thing, not an event, but a, a practice thing with my team where I said, okay, I want to list all the things that we're doing wrong. All the things oh. that we're doing that, that have led us to this point, right? Think of all the negative things you can, you know, miscommunication, um, as, assuming somebody else is going to do something, not, vo- not voicing your opinion when you have it, like all of these things. And now let's think about the opposite, right? The thing that should either we should have done or we could do moving forward. So like basically until you accept the fact that we are where we are and things happened and how they happened, you know, we can't move forward and change things to be better in the future, you know? And and it was just, it's this quote is like so on the nose with what's with with that story like i think that it's super important to be honest with where you are like you know like and then and then you can do something with it once you identify it 
So yeah, Dude, that's huge. That's a really brave approach to trying to figure out what's going on and how to get better. I mean, um, yeah, that can go really wrong. But yeah, uh, it can. Take it, it totally and, and can. But it. I'm not. You know, whatever. In, yeah. in business, I'm not afraid. Like that. That shit is like so. When you're talking, I, you talked about money earlier. Like, yeah, I need money to feed my family and everything. But anything over and above that, it's just I'm playing with house money, man. And and like, I I can't. I can't operate in what I do with a fear of losing it. Cause then what am I doing? I'm just another yeah. cog in the wheel and I just can't be that any anymore. Maybe it's cause I'm older and that's a young man's game and there's no country for <laughs> old men. I have no idea, but great oh. quote, great quote. Anyway. Wow. This is unbelievable episode. Probably one of my favorites. Trent is fantastic. Thank you for bringing him on. Yeah. And it's funny. I pulled up our, 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 text thread and the last thing i texted him was exactly what he was talking about i wrote this is great <laughs> and he was like ha good times awesome that's awesome uh so yeah join us next week we'll be covering unforgiven uh subscribe review us wherever you can i mean it all helps we'd love to hear from you um and share us with your friends uh we would really love uh other insight from other people and maybe somebody that you know could get something out of this and that's why we do it we you know we we don't do this just for ourselves we do this because we want to help people too so yeah until next time i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies we